which is part of the media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. Be seated this morning and open your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. You might say, well, that's where we've been the last couple of weeks. You're exactly right. We're going to look in Mark chapter 14 this morning, a couple of different applications there. But uh, I, I will make a confession to you this morning. I am a history nerd. Uh, I'm proud of it. Um, my family would attest to that. Uh, when, uh, when it was time for my oldest daughter to, uh, to go on a senior trip, she wanted to, you know, we filled in a lot of historical things. When it's time for my younger one, who's with me this morning, to, to go, she goes, can we just go to the beach? And, uh, you know, no history. That we don't, you don't have to do any research. You don't have to find out, hey, did you know this significant fact about this? But, you know, I kind of got it honest. I've always been that way. And uh, from the time I was a little kid, I just like history and just kind of liked the different factoids about that. And I can remember when I was about eight or nine. I don't know the exact age, but I remember coming across something that uh, kind of stirred my, my memory. Do we have that one shot there? Yep, there you go. And uh, I, I was, uh, Kenny was assassinated uh, when I was like one year old. And so I don't remember anything about that event, but uh, when I was about eight or nine, somebody had a card, maybe not exactly like this, but it had a penny with, with Lincoln on it, and then it had kind of Kennedy, JFK there, and his face had been kind of put there because there was a lot of kind of these coincidences that happened in the lives of both of these men. Now again, I, I'm not a believer in luck. I'm not a believer in fate. I believe in a sovereign God who's controlling and over all things. And yet, as a little kid, this was fascinating to me when they began to line up these different facts. For example, uh, Abraham Lincoln was elected to Congress in 1846. JFK was elected to Congress in 1946, 100 years apart. Well, you can say, well, that, that's not really all that phenomenal. Abraham Lincoln was elected president in 1860. John F. Kennedy was elected president in 1960. The names Lincoln and Kennedy each contain seven letters. That's not a really big deal to me, but, you know, on this list that they start making, they started all these different things. Both presidents were shot on a Friday. Both were shot in the head. Lincoln's secretary, Kennedy, warned him not to go to the theater. Kennedy's secretary, Lincoln, warned him not to go to Dallas. That one has been disproved. That was on this list. And as a kid, I was going, oh, man, that's just too weird. A Lincoln with a Kennedy and a Kennedy with a Lincoln? And, you know, so, but that has since been disproved or has never been proved to be right. Uh, both successors, the ones that succeeded them, were both named Johnson. You might say, well, that's kind of a familiar name, but still, you know, this phenomena continues. Andrew Johnson, who succeeded Lincoln, was born in 1808. Lyndon Johnson, was succeeded in, uh, who succeeded Kennedy, was born in 1908. You're starting to get the, the drill here. And this is the one that as a little kid at eight or nine, I was just going, oh, wow. This is too cool. I will store this in my memory bank forever because this is needed information. And I haven't needed it until this day. But, you know, it was one of those things that, you know, Booth ran from a theater and was called in a warehouse. Oswald ran from a warehouse and was called in a theater. I think that is even kind of time has proven that it may not be quite accurate there. But as a little boy at your nine, I read all of those facts and just liking history. And, and from that moment on, Lincoln and Kennedy were just kind of tied together in my mind. When I thought of one, I thought of the other. Because they just those facts and those different things that fascinated me as an eight or nine-year-old, I was going, man, these guys are like inseparable. You know, was this really on purpose? And not really being a deep theologian at eight or nine, uh, probably believing a little bit more in fate and luck in those days. I'm going, that's just phenomenal. 
sometimes there's two names that just kind of get stuck together in history. As we were reading Mark last week, and as we were really kind of, in the, these last couple of weeks, looking at, you know, the, the phenomena of, that is Easter. Remember two weeks ago, we were going, okay, why the cross? And, and we were asking that in a really, truly theological way, but also in a practical way. That it's through the cross that justice, God's justice, God's love, His holiness, and His wrath are all displayed. It's amazing that God never had to release one of those. Remember we said that He didn't have to ebb and flow. He didn't say, well, this is going to be a loving day, or this is going to be a day of wrath. No, all in fullness in the cross, we see this. God in His fullness. We said the practical application is that we don't have to worry about, you know, one morning waking up with a moody God or an angry God that, yes, a God of wrath and a, a God who is righteous over things, but a God who has already placed the wrath of our sin, if we put trust in the work of Christ, they, he's placed it upon him. He's placed upon us his righteousness. And last week we began to look at uh, what really is sometimes uh, could be seen as an insignificant. In, in that whole last couple of days of Christ, when he instituted the Lord's Supper, and before we took the Lord's Supper last week, we said, you know, all chaos was breaking out. Everything seemed like it was falling apart. And yet in the midst of all that, we see that Christ is really calm. And, and there was that one verse that to me just stands out. Then in Mark chapter 14, verse 15, he told them to go make ready for the Passover feast. And as they were reclining at the table and, and, and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who's uh, eating with me. We see that and we see that Christ already knows. And yet, just moments before, guess what he had done to the very person that was going to betray him? He had washed his feet. Incredible love. We said that in all this chaos, and all this that seems to be falling apart, that Christ is, is really pulling it together. Even to the point as when they were preparing for that Lord's Supper, he said, go find this room, and you'll find that it's prepared and ready. That's where we rest, guys. Not in having the master plan for the next five years, the next ten years, the next fifteen years. As we said last week, the older we get, the more we figure that, yes, we are to have plans and we are to be faithful of planning, but we are not to be presumptuous. We do not know that we have even this day or the next day. And we live in His mercy and His grace every single day. And that really gives us this full appreciation of not only the saving grace of God, but the sustaining grace of God. We're not to be fearful of this timetable. We're to rest in it. And in Psalm 139, just as he said that we are fearfully, wonderfully made, knitted together in our mother's room. In that same passage, just verses later, he says, and I know all the days of your life. I have all the days of your life. This sovereign God, this is where we rest, not in circumstances. And yet there's two guys that maybe will be forever kind of tied together to the Easter story, just like Lincoln and Kennedy and their story. And that's Judas and Peter. Because in Mark chapter 14, that's where we really want to read. We, don't, we kind of miss these little, what we call maybe insignificant, that the room was already prepared and ready. But to me, that was the beauty of this whole chapter. We like to, to rush down and say, okay, what's going to happen here? This is the exciting part. If this was a movie made of this, this is where they'd be playing the music in the background that kind of is kind of you know, a heavy beat there where you're kind of getting in, leaning on the edge of your, your seat to see what's going to happen. And we begin to see what happens. The disciples begin to question 
when Christ said, okay, there's going to be one that will betray me. And, and they all begin to say, is it I? Is it I? And I think what they really were saying right after, is it I? Says, oh, I think it's you. I think it's you. And they began to really wonder. And look what happens in verse 20 and 21. He said to them, that is, Jesus said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes, it is written of him, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. We find out this Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve disciples, who had been with Christ for the ministry of these three years, that he was going to betray Christ for 30 pieces of silver. And this is not something that, you know, that was unbeknownst to, to, to the Lord. He, he knows this is going to happen. And he says, as it was written, he says, this is actually fulfilling prophecy. This is something that, for the ages, God has known that this is going to play out this way. And so what we see is chaos. And what we see is kind of falling apart. God says, no, this is divine. This is prophetic. And this is my sovereign will. We see Judas go on, and in verse 27, look what it says. We find out that Judas Iscariot, this one, verse 20 says, And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. As they're kind of all thinking about Judas, how could you do this? Jesus kind of levels the, the playing ground a little bit and he comes back and says, Okay, guys, actually all of you are going to fall away. And maybe you know the story. Maybe you're familiar with this text. And you're going, yeah, it's about time for Peter to speak up. And he certainly does. In the midst of this conversation, when, when Christ has said, okay, Judas, you're going to betray me. And when they kind of get their high horses and they begin to say, well, thank goodness it wasn't us. He says, but every one of you are going to scatter. Look at verse 31. After he says that, you know, he points out Peter and, and Peter takes the offensive. He says that he will never deny Christ. Look what it says in verse 31. This is the words of Peter. But he said, how? Emphatically. He didn't just say, well, you know, I'm not thinking that I'm feeling that way. No, he's very, very, he's, he's on the offensive. Some would say maybe he's on the defensive. But no, he's taking charge of this conversation. He says, no, look, I'm, I'm in doubt about these other ones. You know, Judas is kind of out now, but there's ten others, and, and I, I have my doubts about them. But emphatically, he says, I, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And like they often did, everybody else kind of chimed in. Peter was a leader. He was an incredible leader. And usually when Peter led the way, whether right or wrong, oftentimes there were the other disciples behind him in his error or in his victory. And here he promises, look, Jesus, I always had my wonderment about Judas, but I can tell you I will die for you. And as we said many times when we looked at this passage in the, in the past years, I do believe that Peter in his heart was sincere. I believe that there was a sincerity about Peter, that he really believed that. He didn't realize his own sinfulness and his own vulnerability, as oftentimes we don't realize our own sinfulness, our own fallenness, the depravity that we have. And we say, no, I think I can pass this test. And he thought he could pass that test. He says, okay, God, I'm, I'm ready. He says, I'm ready to die for you. I'll take a sword. I'll, I'll take whatever. I will die for you. You may know the rest of the story. Christ is not going to be faulted here. 
Judas does go on to betray Jesus, and Peter does go on to deny Jesus. We, we see that in the balance of, of chapter 14 there. And in many minds, these two men, maybe like Lincoln and, and Kennedy, are, are then kind of linked into this last week, this Passion Week, this, this Holy Week, as two that just could not stand the test, that did not stand with Christ in this time. And, and maybe we say, okay, Judas, we think even worse of you, and uh, a little bad of Peter, but these two men are linked, not by their victory, but in their failure. As the world begins to turn what seems to be upside down, we see these two men linked. And yet after that moment, I want you to notice that there's something amazing that happens. Their, their lives uh, together at this point in failure, and then all of a sudden these two lives are going to start to go in two different directions, guys. There's a major difference that's going to be played out in these two lives. One goes on to kind of be just identified with what it is to be a traitor. Very few people name their kids Judas nowadays. Uh, Judas. What made the difference? Two guys that didn't think, you know, at one time they're just, they're walking with Christ, they're following with Christ for three years. Two guys that, that would pledge their allegiance to Christ, and, and yet in crucial times we find that they have failure in their life, one betraying, one denying Christ. Two, two guys that are kind of walking together in this failure, and, and yet all of a sudden we see something that happens, and, and their lives are forever different. The difference is what we celebrate today. The very resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let, let me kind of fill in the, uh, in the story a little bit. In verses 43 through 45, we're not going to read it right now, but we see that Judas comes and he betrays Jesus with a kiss. If you drop down to verse 66 through verse 72 of that same chapter, we see that Peter denies Christ, not once, not twice, but three different times. So the difference is not that one suddenly became heroic in Jesus' prophecy about their life, and one had victory and one had failure. We don't see that one kind of made a wise choice and one made an unwise choice. What we see is that both men, if we read the story, both are joined together in failure. One betrays and one denies. The difference also was not the immediate response of these men. You know, as much as we may think of Judas as this betrayer, as this traitor that would sell out Jesus Christ, oh, the scriptures tell us, if we go over to uh, this text and, and to other texts, that there was some remorse and, and there was some repentance. If we go down to verse 72 here, it says, uh, immediately, this is talking about Peter, it says, immediately the, the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And what does the last part of that verse say? And he broke down and wept. So here he, he has failure in his life, and yet there's this remorse, there's this regret. Well, some would say that there's repentance at this point, but he, he feels terrible about it. They're going, okay, that's what separates Peter from Judas. Judas didn't feel bad about it. Now go over to Matthew chapter 27. may not tell us the whole story right here about Judas, but look what it says in Matthew chapter 27, verse 3 and 4. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, 
He did what? What's it say? He changed his mind. He changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have what? I've sinned. He recognizes not just his failure, but it's a sin by betraying innocent blood. Peter's weeping over his failure. Judas is broken over his failure. So far, the difference that we see between these two is not that one is better than the other. One became more heroic than the other. One kind of got over it and repented, and the other one didn't. Now, so far, we see that they're really kind of traveling the same path. But then something happens, guys. Judas, in, in that remorse and that regret that he has, when he understands the full weight of what he's done to, to Jesus, even though it was predicted and it was prophesied, and it's all in the sovereignty of a, of a sovereign God, Judas goes out and he hangs himself. And so I sober. Two men, similar sins. I guess you could argue denial, betrayal, which one's worse. I would say that they're equal in their failure. Two men with similar sorrows, some regret and some remorse over it. And yet at this point is when we begin to see their lives separate forever, guys. And so we ask again, what's the difference? Similar sins, similar defeats. How does one get past and one doesn't get He felt bad. He felt bad. Remember, none of this is out of God's sovereignty. These actions of the two men do not surprise Jesus. In fact, he, he predicts it. Yet the difference between these two men rests in what happens in the next few days. Judas hangs himself. His life is over. And, and he does not experience what Peter gets to experience. Even in his failure, and even though he's weeping, weeping bitterly that he has denied Christ three times, from afar he is still watching the events of the next couple of days. And what happens in the next couple of days? Christ is crucified for the sins of the world. He is put into a, a tomb. And three days later, he, he rises from the dead. And Peter is one of those that would run to the tomb and find that it's empty. Because this is not about who's the better man. It never was. Because there's not a better man. Not among us and not among them. This was never about, okay, the top 50% are going to get to heaven. The bottom 50%, you're not going to go to heaven. You can guess where you're going to go. How many of you loved when teachers graded on a curve? How many of you really got frustrated by this whole, uh, you know, non-curve thing that, you know, sometimes you had teachers said, okay, I do not curve. If you made a 69.9 and 70 is passing, you made a 69.9. How many of you ever had a teacher like that? And that was frustrating because you're going, man, it's 69.9. I am a breath away. I'm like even one synapse away from passing this. Can't you pass me? No, it's 69.9. See, if, if it was morality was the judge, guys, would you want to stand before a holy God? Well, you know... John, 69.9. But don't be embarrassed. You're way ahead of Brandon. Way ahead. 
He's not even, you know, he's not even near the breaking point. But what if, what if we live for goodness and morality? And that was the, our whole thing is, I just want to be this better person, and I want to do it in the name of Christ. And we try to go out there, and we try to be really, really righteous, good people in our own works. And when it all was said and done, because we know our hearts and we know our thoughts, don't we? And how many of you would say, man, I'd take a 69.9, knowing your own hearts and your own minds and the evilness that dwells in there sometimes. But wouldn't that be tragic, guys? That it wasn't a passing or failing grade in a class meant that you had to take that class over, but it was your eternal destiny, and you were 69.9. What if it's 69.99? And you look back over 60 or 70 years and said, if I would have just did this one more right thing, I would get heaven. See, this is the fallacy. This is the, this is the, can I use the word stupidity? Of thinking that we earn our righteousness before a holy God. Guys, 69.9, I promise you, most of us would not be there. And if, if 70 was passing, and even if we were that good, and we were at 16.69.999, and, and God said, no. I mean, does that even make sense? And yet a lot of us will live our Christian lives in that mindset of, of just, okay, I'm trying to be more and more. I'm trying to do it. Folks, both of these guys have failed at a major test in life. Neither one of them rose to the occasion and ended up being heroic in that, that time that Christ had predicted that one would betray and one would deny. They both fell. They both become broken over it. They even share this same quality of, of sorrow over it. So it's not just that we're not good people but, and that we just don't feel bad enough. So far, these guys are the same. But here's the difference. Judas ends his life. He never sees the cross. He never sees an empty tomb. He never receives the, the filling of God's Holy Spirit. Peter, in all of his imperfections and all of his failure, because the very preserving prayer of Christ Christ is the one that was praying for him to persevere in the midst of that. And he perseveres. And while he doesn't get everything right from that moment on, folks, he goes on to experience the cross. He goes on to experience the empty tomb. And praise God on Pentecost. He experiences the, the dwelling of God inside himself. This is Easter. That's Easter, guys. Not I want to be a better person. Not... You know, I've done really bad things. I really feel bad about that, so I just want to you know, get all my sorrows. I want to weep bitterly, kind of like he... No, it's all about him. And why we celebrate this day is that God didn't say, okay, the top half comes. The top back, the bottom half, depart from me. The way we celebrate this day is is because even in sometimes... I mean, we've all had sorrow in our lives. There's all been times that we have sinned. We felt bad about it yesterday, uh, afterwards, sometimes with regret, sometimes with true biblical repentance. But we've, we've, I think every human being has experienced that to some degree. We, we would call a person who did not have any sorrow, any re regret, repentance, we would call them a monster. How could they even do this and feel this way? And so most of us would not consider ourselves a monster. And we would consider ourselves very much that there's been times that we've been brokenhearted. The answer isn't just in being broken over your sin. It's not just realizing your failure. It's experiencing what Christ has done. 
Bottom line, guys, here's Easter. Not out of this group here this morning or any group that's assuming to go, who's the top half? Who's the most sincere about their repentance? Even though I don't want to discount repentance because it plays a, a, a major part. But both of these guys were sorrowful. And, and even in one version we do see where the word translated is that, that Judas repented. But he did not repent to salvation, my, my belief. Oh, difference is we are fallen people and we have a lot of failure in our life. And there's a God who loves us that sent his only son to die for us. And we get to experience the work of Christ on the cross, the empty tomb on that Sunday morning, and the filling of God's very spirit within us, his dwelling within us, when we trust in that finished work. That's what separates not only the eternal destiny, but even the history from that point on of a Judas Iscariot and the Simon Peter. Not their goodness. Not even their sorrow. One lived to see the Savior and experience the gospel. This morning, is that where you put your rest? Do you rest in the fact that Christ died for you? That as you trust in his finished work, when he said on the cross, it is finished, that your payment would be paid in full, that the full wrath of God was put on Christ, that you were deserving of, and yet he put it on Christ so that there would be justice that was done. So that on this Easter Sunday morning, we can sit there and say, not, hey, we are the most moral people in town. We're the, we're the good ones as opposed to the bad ones. No, we're the ones that are really brokenhearted and really repentful over No, that we can say, no, I know Christ. I know his finished work. And that's where I rest. And that brings repentance to my heart and to my mind as I look at the gift of God. And so as we close this morning, I, I want you to know that that's, that's the fullness of Easter. And there will be standing before God one day. Those who have known forgiveness of sin and those who have not. Those who have experienced uh, Isaiah 1.18, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. The difference will not be, hey, you got a 69.9, you got a 75, this one got a 98, and this one got a 22. Praise God for the people that would get a 22 in life, that there's a Jesus who died for me, and that I can come running to him, and I can embrace that and experience the work of Christ on the cross, an empty tomb this Easter morning, and I can be dwelled with the very Spirit of God in my life. Amen? Amen. I mean, don't you want this for you? Don't you? This does not come by your works. It comes by the gift. This is Easter. This is Easter, guys. The empty tomb. A risen Christ. That God who says, I love you so much that I'm going to help you persevere. I'm going to come dwell in you until that day. And so now he invites us on this Easter morning to come to the altar, to, to, to pray, to come to the altar, even the altar of, of your own heart right there, to just lift up your needs, to, to thank him this morning for this empty tomb and for the hope that we have in Christ. This morning we come and we come to him and we say, God, you know, I'm a Judas and, and I'm a Peter in my failures. And I certainly have experienced 
what it means to be down about my sin and have some regret. But God, I, I want to be like Peter here. I want to follow and experience the fullness of, of what happens on that day of crucifixion. And I want to experience that empty tomb. And I want to experience your fullness living in me. This is the gift of God. This is Easter. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we love you and we thank you. And Father, now we do come to the altar. You invite us. You invite us not as perfection. You invite us not because we have uh, uh, been better this week than we were last week. Father, you don't invite us on the basis of our goodness at all. In fact, Father, you invite us on the basis of our lostness and our sinfulness, Father. And you invite us to come and and to feast upon Christ in, in his finished work. And so, Father, on this Easter Sunday morning, Father, we rejoice in that. Father, rejoice that that Christ would pay this price for our salvation, that he would complete it in full. There's nothing that we can add to it. And, Father, today we can have that victory of what it means that there is a risen Savior, that the tomb is empty. And all those songs that we sang before, Father, that death has been arrested. And my life began. Father, I pray that we would rejoice in, our, in the life you have given and extend it to us this day. And Father, if, even if there's those this morning that said, you know, I, I came this morning and in my heart, my mind, I kind of was doing the moral thing. I'm just trying to be a better person. Father, I pray that this morning you would show them that uh, they will never be good enough, but that you've loved them and that, Father, you've extended a way for them to come to know you and experience Easter in all of its fullness. Father, thank you that you have invited us to come to the altar and worship, receive forgiveness, and to make much of you. We love you and thank you. And now, Father, we sing this song. And we sing it out to you as as just a prayer of our hearts this Easter Sunday morning, Father. A commitment of our lives that we will bow before you and that we will make much of you. We love you and we thank you, Father, as we pray all this in the name of Christ, our hope and our salvation. Amen. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.com dot corner dash stone dot org or find us on Facebook.